Bibles, please turn to Genesis chapter 3. Each year at Christmas time or Advent, it can be a little difficult to find new things to say uh, or new ways to say the same things, I should say, since there's absolutely no need to change the truth. This year, though, I was fortunate to come across some readings on Advent from a source I go to pretty often on the Internet called the 1517 Project, uh, looking back to the Reformation. The gentleman that were scheduled to speak here last year, right when kind of everything started in March, or it's this year still, um, they contribute to this site. It's, it's packed with Christ-centered, uh, gospel-proclaiming resources, and so I, I really like it. They had a series on uh, the promises of Advent, and it's helped me form my words for you this Christmas season, so I'm very thankful for that. Our Our God is a God of promise. In a world where the future has probably never felt more uncertain to us, there couldn't be better news for us this Christmas season as we get ready to enter a new year. 2020 uh, brought us things that weren't just unexpected, but were completely, I think, unforeseen. Our, Our country basically shut down for a few months. Businesses had to close. Some... We're never able to reopen and won't be. Uh, schools aren't back to normal. Many churches aren't back to normal. Many have lost their jobs. The economy's still recovering. We've, uh, many of us have lost loved ones. We've been separated from one another. And in the midst of all this fallout from a virus, many have gotten seriously ill from the virus. Uh, we, ex- we, uh, the election is still being disputed. Uh, what 2021 will bring us No one can really say. And yet, here we are. Here we still stand, beloved, taking each day as it comes, right? But we we do not face these days without hope. We don't face these days without something under our feet. Christmas time reminds us to look up towards the one who not only makes promises, but keeps them. It's a reminder that God not only speaks His promises into existence, He speaks them into fulfillment. They always come true. God has been proving this literally since the beginning of time. He proves it all throughout His Word. And under the darkness of this current age that we live in, God's people again stand waiting on the fulfillment of a promise, another promise of His coming. But in these days, we await the return of our Lord Jesus Christ, because He's been here once before. The first coming of Jesus is nothing less than a reminder of His second coming. And so, over the Sundays of Advent 2020, let's take some time to reflect on some of the promises God has made and fulfilled through the birth and the life and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. God's fulfillment of these promises reminds us that God fulfills all of His promises. He always keeps His word This is our hope this Christmas and always. Faith doesn't rest on what it sees. Faith rests on what it hears, beloved. On what it hears. And what we hear comes from the mouth of God Himself. God's plan of salvation for sinners began in His mind before creation ever did. His promise that this plan would be accomplished began in a garden. If you remember, in the midst of cataclysmic tragedy 
when Satan, God's mortal enemy, had successfully deceived the first woman and the first man, had stood by and let it happen there in the shadow of sin and failure and death and a curse, God made a promise. And I love this line from Joel Hess, which is the point of our message this morning. I can't say it any better. The son of Eve would disarm Satan's hold on humanity, not with an earthquake, atomic bomb, or a brilliant essay, but with the words and his dead body, it is finished. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for this promise that your son would conquer Satan. We rest in it, Father. Open our eyes, our hearts to your word this morning and for your name, for your son and for your people. Make my words clear and true. I ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Genesis chapter 3. Humanity has fallen. They've sinned. And God speaks in verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, Cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. From the outset of scripture, if anything is apparent, it is the fact that God is a God of Promises Again, not only a promise maker, but we'll find a promise keeper. This is the first one of the first things he does. This is how God reveals himself to humanity as a God of covenant, of promise, a God who comes down to meet with us, to enter into terms with us, making promises to us, but then keeping that saving word, which is always what it is, to sinners bringing to pass what he said he would do, no matter how much we resist or how much we forsake him from our side. God binds himself, his name, to his own promises. He is revealed as a God who does not abandon us because we've rebelled, but goes to work immediately in the garden at the very moment of our rebellion to assure the very people who sinned against him that he is going to be the one to undo the curse he himself has just pronounced. God simultaneously reveals to humanity at the outset of his creation in Genesis 3 that he is both infinitely holy and yet indescribably merciful. Who would have thought those two things coexist perfectly in God and in God alone? What we know as Christmas was God finally enacting the promise that set the world itself into motion, beloved. That baby in a manger meant God had not forgotten or abandoned what he said at the very beginning. I don't think the devil even saw what we think of now as Christmas coming. No one did really, at least not the way in which God was going to enact his plan. A little baby born to an obscure virgin, crying, making little noises in a feeding trough not too far from the great city of Jerusalem, but a million miles away from people's expectations for the coming of the king, the seed of the woman who was going to crush the serpent's head. What can a baby do? He was vulnerable. He was tiny. What if an animal tipped over the trough? What if someone took him? I mean, Herod went on to 
try or successfully kill every male baby born in the region during that time. Absolute genocide. What what if it got too cold for a newborn in the stable? You've seen the the baby burrito. They wrap a baby up in. Babies can't get cold. They can't survive in cold or exposure very long. What if Mary, so young, her body so small, what if she died during childbirth? Everything was so precarious, wasn't it? It was the opposite of everything we conjure in our minds when we think of a king crushing Satan's head or of a king at all or victory and salvation Undoing a curse, ending death. If that's going to happen, it takes a warrior and a great army and a great invasion or something. The host of heaven announced the baby's arrival, yes, but not to Caesar, right? That great announcement of the host of heaven didn't come to Rome. It didn't come to the Sanhedrin. It came to shepherds watching over their flocks in a field in the middle of the night. I wonder if Satan remembered, because I figure he heard all that. I wonder if he remembered What God had said to him all the way back in the garden when he heard the angels proclaiming the birth of a child, a seed of the woman. Satan had been the serpent who tempted Eve with the possibility of a world where human beings could run the show. Where they didn't answer to God. They decided for themselves what was right and what was wrong. A world ran by the free will of autonomous sinners rather than by a sovereign, holy, merciful God, when she fell and then gave the forbidden fruit to her husband who was with her and he ate it, I'm I'm sure that Satan thought he had won. It was over. He'd ruined the crown of this creation. God was so dedicated to making absolutely perfect. And then God cursed humanity for their sin and the ground and the serpent. And now every human being from that moment forward born would eventually die just as God said They would. Adam and Eve would die. And since now rebellion would end up in the DNA of every human being ever born, Satan figured then there's absolutely no hope of there ever being a savior. Everybody's tainted. Who can save? If God demands blood, whose blood is good enough to cover the sins of humanity? They can't save themselves. He probably laughed. To himself, But then God said something to him that he couldn't have expected. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And by the way, from that moment on, the story of scripture is the story of conflict between two offsprings. It's all it is. It's all that's still happening. The seed of the woman, the seed of the serpent. But no matter how many sons were born... Even to the best people, or the best of people, they all failed. They all kept dying. So think of the hundreds, the thousands of years passing, and every son, even the ones that show promise, die. And they fail at some point before they die. And so just over and over and over again, it seems like you get further and further away from the possibility that this promise of a seed of the woman who will crush the serpent's head will ever be born, will ever Come. That's the way it is with us. When God makes a promise and then time passes, gradually you begin to doubt it or forget it or question whether or not it's true at all. Don't think Satan didn't do the same thing as the years marched by, even though he knew the promise. And judging by his actions during the life of Jesus, 
Satan apparently thought that bruising the son's heel meant he could destroy him entirely. Right? If, if he would have known what he was doing, he would have enacted a different plan. But evil is irrational. Never forget that. Right? It's irrational. Satan was probably a very vigilant snake, though, standing guard where he thought this might come about, near Jerusalem probably, watching, waiting to pounce. That's where this child would have to be born, somewhere near the power brokers and the movers and shakers, the decision makers, the important people. And I know there was prophecy about Bethlehem, but Satan has already proven he rejects God's word. So it it didn't matter what prophecy, where prophecy said the son would be born. Again, evil is irrational. Satan had his own plans. Anyone that was going to crush his head would be recognizable. That would be a fortunate son. If he were alive today, he'd be a graduate of Harvard, right? He'd be a martial arts expert. He'd be special forces, something like this. You'd know him when you saw him. Remember what Philip said in John chapter 1 when he heard about Jesus? Nazareth. (laughs) What good can come out of Nazareth? Even people that weren't against God questioned the veracity of Jesus' origins. Herod had wiped out every baby born in Bethlehem when he heard about the news of Jesus' birth. That's a part of the story we, we tend to just not think. I mean, how awful would that have been? And Israel had suffered this kind of thing before in Egypt. And so you, you just imagine waiting on God's promises, watching all of this take place, not realizing that it's, it's happening right in front of your eyes, right among you, but babies are being killed. Looks like Satan's winning when babies are being killed. Doesn't get worse than that. Some 30 years or so later, Herod's son would see the baby who escaped, this dangerous king, weak and beaten. It never looked like that Satan's head was being crushed. It looked like the opposite. It always does in the world. The baby, again, he'd escaped Herod's massacre in Bethlehem. He disappeared into a caravan to Egypt. In other words, this was no conqueror. This baby, this is no conqueror. This is someone um, Paul Simon talked about in his song, The Boxer, right? Laying low, seeking out the poor quarters where the ragged people go, looking for the places only they would know that was Jesus, it seemed. So when Satan finally caught up with him, he was standing in a line with a bunch of ordinary people filled with sin, unlike him, waiting to be baptized with them by this preacher named John the Baptist. No one knew quite for sure what to make of him. And in Luke 3.22, when he went into the water, Satan heard a voice he'd heard before say words that he probably shuddered to hear and shook him to his core. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. That had never been said. Despite the lack of notoriety, despite the humble beginnings, this was him. There he was. He was here. So Satan followed him out into the wilderness to bite at his heels, if you will. As 
in God's plan before it even got started. This was, however, not an ordinary son of Eve. This was an obedient son of Eve. Now the devil, what did the devil do? The devil tried to question him like a prosecuting attorney. If you are God's son, if you are God's son, remember, he's been a liar and a murderer from the very beginning. And his approach doesn't change. He uses the same old tricks, trying to do what? To get Jesus to doubt his identity, just like he had done with Eve. If you are God's son, to convince him he could stand on his own. Follow me. Right? And, and there's no thunder here. There's no lightning. There's only the measured word of a hungry, hot, probably dehydrated, sweaty, everyday man who looked too weak to hurt a flea probably, but his word resisted the temptation of the ancient snake. That word was victorious over the serpent. It didn't need to be loud. There didn't need to be any thunder or lightning. The truth is the truth. The same word that calmed a Samaritan woman at a well, remember? And opened heaven to her. That raised a widow's son, raised a beloved brother from the dead, you remember? The same word that saved the life of an adulterous woman under the rage of religious zealots and spoke life and peace and healing to a woman weeping and pouring perfume all over his feet. These were the hands that would touch lepers and make them whole. Jesus was never where he was supposed to be. The places of power and notoriety is what I mean by that. He just went around saving people from their sins, loving them, and Satan didn't know what to do, but I, I bet he felt the pressure of a boot slowly pushing down on his head because as the, the life of Jesus goes on, he gets more and more irrational. He starts out trying to deter Jesus from his mission, and by the end of his life, he's actively participating in bringing about his death because eventually the darkness did come. And it came because God made sure it came. It would go as it was written of the Son of Man. God had a plan. And so God had made promises. And those promises would come to pass. The Son's heel would be bruised. And it looked a lot worse than the bruising of a heel. He did suffer. And the snake that slithered through the garden, would wind his way into the hearts and minds of people that hated Jesus also. So a plot was set in motion. Jesus was arrested, brought to a kangaroo court, convicted of blasphemy of all things, crucified on a cross, dead. He died. Jesus literally, physically died. Satan apparently believed that if Jesus would killed was killed, then it would put an end to God's promise. It would mean his victory, that the seed of the woman had his head crushed instead of the serpent. And for three days and three nights, the universe and the promise lay in utter darkness. What did King David say, though, in Psalm 139, 12? The darkness is not dark to him. Right. 
not to him. God is also present in the dark. His promise holds, beloved, in the dark also. God walks on the waves at night when the ocean is raging. That's where he is. That's what he's doing. In a turn of events, Satan never saw coming the serpent that had begun the rebellion that threw humanity into the curse of death became God's instrument to bring about God's salvation through the death of this promised son. Because of God's promise, the cross was only the bruising of the son's heel. That's what it looked like. The son would crush the serpent's head by dying because his death would be the one thing that no one and nothing else could accomplish. It would do the one thing only he could. God gave the devil enough rope to hang himself. That's precisely what happened. The original rebel who threw creation into chaos would be the one whose plan restored it to what God had always intended. This is the power of our God, beloved. This is the way in which he works. This is what he can do. This is what a baby that will grow up and save the world and remake creation means to us. Satan's most malignant and darkest scheme was God's inexpressible gift to mankind. Satan meant evil, God meant it for good, and God always wins. A suffering Savior that laid down his life rather than striking back at his rebellious creation. Satan banked on justice, not mercy, and therefore didn't know or perceive the plan of God. The foot that was supposed to crush the serpent's head was bruised. Right? Have you ever thought about that? Crush your head, presumably with a boot, but his heel is bruised. How's he going to do it with a bruised heel? How's he going to do it from the grave? Satan had hit a home run for the other team. (laughs) He didn't know God was the pitcher that threw that perfect 65 mile per hour ball right across the center of the plate. Who would have thought that the plan was to lose the game? Who would have thought that the devil's head would be cursed or crushed by a dying savior nailed to a tree. For thousands of years, this was the plan. Everything was working towards the cross. Everything. Everything. And God accomplished it to absolute perfection. No loose ends. No stone left unturned. It was perfectly Accomplished, perfectly accomplished. Do you know, can you comprehend the amount of sovereignty it would take to ensure this went off without a hitch? Turns out that the lamb standing as though he has been slain is also the lion of the tribe of Judah. And he roars, beloved. The conquering root of David himself. The son of Eve disarmed Satan's hold on humanity, not with an earthquake, not with an atomic bomb, not with a brilliant essay, 
All the things we think would destroy the devil. But with his dead body and the final words, it is finished. It's accomplished. To tell us die, it is done. And when you put the seed of the woman in the grave, you get three days and three nights. And that's it. And he wakes up, literally, physically, walks out of the grave. The territory conquered. The crown his. The salvation purchased. Satan's head crushed. And that's the way it is. Do you know this morning what, do I know this morning what those words actually mean? It is finished. What's finished? What's done? Well, the head has been crushed. The sun is victorious. We saw glimpses of this all along, right? If you, if you go back and Read the story. I think maybe I've mentioned it before, but if, how many of you have seen the movie The Sixth Sense? I'm going to ruin the end for you, but but again, if I've talked about this before, that movie's like over 20 years old. If you don't know the end now, I can't I can't help you. But once you see the end of it, right? Once you know that Bruce Willis is dead the whole time, watch the movie again. It's a whole different movie. It's a whole different movie. It's it's really an amazingly well done. Hitchcockian type film. That's a free adjective. You use that whenever you want. It'll blow your friends and neighbors away. If you're sitting at Perkins, that was Hitchcockian. What? You're a genius. It would, trust me, it'll be great. Just use it. Use that. God's plan was to lose so we could win. We, we, we could have picked up on that if we were looking. Like when lowly Jacob Wrestles God for a night and prevails. What do you mean prevails? Well, it's, it's a, it's a, it literally happened, but it's a, it's a picture of the plan. The same one from Genesis 3. This is how I'm, I'm, I'm actually winning. It just looks like you are. The plan was to die so that we could live. God offered up Himself to us as the means of saving us rather than requiring that the reconciliation come from the side that did the offending, God sent His Son from heaven to do it. He didn't exact it from earth. He sent a Son from heaven to do this for us. Satan can't undo this. It's finished. The blood is on the seal. It's done. It can't be undone. Satan can't open the scroll. Jesus can No one can undo this. No one can undo this. It's finished, beloved. Do you think that your personal ongoing struggle with sin can undo a God that does this? That's capable of this? Whispered and screamed over everything you and I do wrong are the words, it is finished though. By a humiliating death, A humiliating death for the Son of God to endure. That song, Mary, did you know, that song's about Jesus. Right? It's not even really about Mary. But when you kiss the little baby, you kiss the face of God. 
right. Right. God the Son in human flesh. You can't undo something like that. That By humiliating death, by condescension, Jesus has defanged the snake on his territory. You talk about a flex. I'll come there and do it. We'll fight in your kingdom and I'll come alone. And I'll destroy you and everything you stand for. He walks out of the grave. Which means the serpent can still bite. It just, there's no longer any teeth. There's no longer any venom that can destroy the one who trusts in Jesus. He injects nothing but his lies. And his lies carry no weight against the blood of Jesus. None. So the devil can rant and rave and accuse and slither. But the words of Jesus Christ are fixed. You are forgiven. Your guilt, your conscience, your record, mine, beloved, they all scream for justice. That's what they deserve. Make no mistake. But the words of Jesus Christ are fixed. And his words speak louder than the accusations of the snake. For the child of God, grace is louder than justice. The son of Eve not only crushes the serpent's head, but in so doing crushes all his accusations against you. Right? If the head is crushed, the mouth can't speak too well. Satan wants us to doubt our identity. He wants us to question God's word. This is all he has just as he did with Eve and tried to do with Jesus. If you're really God's child, then why are you suffering so much? Why are you going through so much if you really are God's child? Have you sinned? Are you weak? Did you blow it again? God doesn't love you. He doesn't care about you. He doesn't even know you exist. He won't forgive you this time. (laughs) Don't ask. He's not going to do it this time. You you think think he's going to keep being faithful? You think he's going to return? Where is he? It's been 2,000 years and counting. Where is he? Life just goes on. People just do what they want to do. Where is he? Those questions haven't been asked before. Think prophets like Nathan weren't looking? Where are you? You think, you think the exiles in Babylon weren't asking, where are you? Well, he's working out a plan that will come to pass. Guaranteed. What does Jesus say? To the struggling sinner. What does Jesus say to the weak, almost faithless one? What does Jesus say? Jesus has all the authority of heaven and earth granted to him. So the snake can make his accusations and they're big because they come from him. But what does Jesus say about you? He's already said it. It is finished. 
That's already been dealt with. That's what Jesus says. We already have dealt with that. You rest in me. You believe me. So all that comes out of his mouth, Satan's mouth, now that his head has been crushed, is muddled and contorted. It's all lies. It's finished. That's how Jesus won. By dying. And rising again. All Jesus does is go to surprising places, into enemy territory, saying, if you will, Merry Christmas to we who are imprisoned by shame and the fear of death. It is finished. Is God's gift to us. Satan's accusations carry no weight. They hold no power. He had his shot. He lost. He didn't do it. It's over. Come to me now is the word that matters. Come to me because it's finished. That's the message proclaimed by little old preachers like me and Sunday school teachers and cashiers and janitors and lawyers and accountants and pipeliners and coal miners and and nobody sees it coming because it's all coming from us. Nobody expects that that's the truth. That salvation belongs to any and all who throw themselves at the feet of Jesus. That's all you have to do? Yes. Why? Because it's cheap? No, no, no. Because it's finished. Because it's done. The work required to gain it is done, beloved. Just believe it. Just rest in it. There isn't a person within the sound of my voice for whom this message is not It is yours. This is what Jesus has done. I say it to the believer and the unbeliever. It is finished. Embrace it. Believe it. He forgives. That's what he does. He just, he welcomes. That's what he does. He washes clean. Clean. Wouldn't it be nice to be clean? He makes new. And it's free because Jesus does all the work. He asks you to help him move and then you show up and he's got it done. What a gift. What a gift. Because God's plan never fails. Because God always keeps his promises. Because Satan has been conquered. And every time a sinner comes home, I just have to wonder again, I have no proof, I have no biblical evidence for this, so I'm not making a truth claim. I'm simply wondering, wouldn't it be something if every time a sinner comes home while the angels are rejoicing, Adam and Eve catch a look at each other and smile as their promised son turns everything bad they ever did into good again and again and again and again. Makes everything sad come untrue. Because that was the plan. And that is the promise. And the first Christmas in Bethlehem, 2,000 years ago, that means another day is coming. A day also fixed in the heavens by the Word of God. When this Son will return, not to be crucified this time, but to rule, to put an end to the world as it is, and usher in the next, 
the one that will never end and never be cursed. Jesus offers this to all who believe, and he secures it for every single one of them. Remember Jesus this Christmas. Remember him. As you suffer and the darkness closes in around you, as it does over and over again, you remember that the darkness is not dark to the God who does such things. Not to the one who conquered Satan by dying. Rest in him. He's good. Rest in him. He can rescue you. Let's pray. And we'll take the Lord's Supper together. Father, we rejoice at the news that has now come to pass of the coming of Jesus Christ into the world to purchase redemption for all who will believe in him from every tribe and language and people and nation on the earth. Whosoever will, Father, let him take of the cup freely and receive this gift, Lord God, by your grace and by your power. Father, I ask that as we reflect this year, as we look to you, that you would constantly remind us of the certainty of your promises. May we rest in them as our all and our only hope. The word of a God who is so strong that he conquers by laying down his life rather than taking ours, which is what justice would have been. I ask and pray these things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.